Good morning, everybody. My name is Nick Bogardis. It's really good to be with you all. Um, it's kind of funny standing up on this stage because um, a little bit of history here. Um, my very first punk rock show was in this room. Um, back in the early 90s, a band called MXPX. I don't know if you guys remember them. Uh, if you can picture this room shoulder to shoulder, front to back, uh, with a bunch of teenagers uh, moshing and doing all this stuff, it's funny to be here at this point right now. Um, and fast forward a few years from that point, I was a student at Concordia, and in my dorm room, I was negotiating our first record contract. So I don't know whether to give Pastor Tim blame or credit, um, but either way, it's kind of funny to have a little bit of a full circle experience here. Um, let's jump in. Okay. So my, grandpa, my grandfather, Vern, um, went to church here for uh, decades, and he loved photography, and he had um, uh, one of those slide projectors. Um, you guys remember those old slide projectors, you click the button, it would rotate around, right? If you saw Mad Men, remember the carousel episode? Amazing, like, piece of advertising in there. Um, but he had one of these slides, you know, he had the slide projector, and we would watch these slides every once in a while growing up. Fast forward a little bit. Um, my dad also took a lot of uh, VHS video of our family. You guys remember those shoulder-mounted, like, VHS uh, recorders? And you guys were a little bit older, uh, maybe like 40s or so. Um, this wasn't like you had a phone in your pocket, you could just casually pull it out. It was like a sling pack you pulled over and, and <laughs> held on your shoulder as you were trying to enjoy family moments, if you can um, imagine that. Um, and then you also had, remember those photo albums you had when you were growing up? They were like CrossFit equipment, they were so big. You have them on a bookshelf, and they're massive. Now these days, right, we have, uh, our family has Apple TV. My wife is a photographer, um, and she um, captures our family moments, you know, obviously ex exceptionally well. And our kids love to watch their pictures on our screen, on our um, slideshows, right? They, they like to remember things when they were toddlers, uh, their first, um, when they would learn to walk, um, when they, the playground they used to love to play on. They, they love to be reminded of the story within which they, they find themselves. There's an there's a anecdote about C.S. Lewis. Um, back in the 50s, there was a space race between um, Russia and the U.S. for who could go to space first. Russians got up there first. Cosmonaut comes back, and he says, I went to space, and God was not there either. And C.S. Lewis said, well, that's stupid, because... That's like thinking you relate to God like the man on the first story of the building relates to the man on the second story of the building. We don't relate to God like that. We relate to God like Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. We are within a story that God is writing and authoring. He is outside of this, and he is working in and through the events of humanity to bring about redemption and restoration. What I'm getting at here is that it's helpful to be reminded of the story that you are part of, because a lot of times those familiar pieces get rote. They get so familiar that they lose their meaning. And when you read scripture, a lot of times that's what we're doing. In the same way a family might remember a family trip on a slide carousel or an Apple slideshow or whatever, or your phone flipping through, whatever it is that you remember things through and you remember what that felt like and how good that was and what it meant. Um, and it's easy to get distanced from those moments. It's similar in scripture to go in and see these, these pictures that we might have heard a hundred times before and lose how deep and profound they are. And without regular, and remi without regular reminders, the story that you and I both put ourselves in and live within is too small. It's always too small. We need God's recalibration, reorientation to be reminded of whose story we actually live within. 
And so this morning, my main point is that the most important truths about you are gained by understanding truths about who God is and how he works through a familiar story. So here's our roadmap for our time together. Jesus seeks and calls. Jesus redeems and remakes. Jesus knows and loves. Three statements, six truths you probably are familiar with. You might go, yeah, 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 Nick, I know, those things are good. And you might get distant from how beautiful and deep and profound they are. So let's jump in. The story from Matthew, Matthew 9, Jesus calling of Matthew. Actually, if you guys would, um, let's, I'll read this scripture aloud for us. I, it's my first time doing that. I totally missed the this scripture reading part. I'm sorry. Um, I'll read it aloud for us, okay? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. Thanks, baby. And were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. Matthew's gospel was a discipleship manual for the early church. The early church used this gospel of Matthew as a way to train new believers, new disciples in Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he came to do, how they should follow him. This gospel was intended to be used like this. And then if you remember the time of the New Testament, um, it's, it's easy for us, again, to get distant from how uniquely kind of similar it is to our moment in a way. Like it's, it's multicultural. If you remember Acts 2, the birth of the church at Pentecost, I mean, there were like 50 languages listed in Acts 2 or whatever. Like it's just, it's incredibly multicultural. People from all around the, the Middle East came to faith in Jesus. So the early church was not a homogenous group. It was very diverse. And so the question kind of for these early Christians was, how do you unify a group like that? Well, you center them on Jesus and who he is, what he says, and in this passage in particular, who he says is in and who's out. Who does Jesus say is in and out? Tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with um, how absolutely treacherous this, um, this vocation was at this time, um, tax collectors were Jews who taxed their own people for the Romans, for the occupying Romans. So it and not only did they tax them, they would overcharge them in order to make more money for themselves. So it would be like um, if, you know, when, when Germany took over Poland, if there was a Polish person who was taxing his own people for the Germans and actually overcharging them so he could get wealthy off of what they had to pay their oppressors. Or it would be like if ISIS took over the U.S. and one of us went and worked as a tax collector for them and overcharged this room for taxes in order to get wealthy off of that. It's that horrifying. The Jews hated tax collectors, absolutely hated them because they were not just agents of their oppressors. They got themselves wealthy off of taxing their own people for the oppressors. That's what Matthew was. And you guys seen The Chosen? Okay, for those of you who haven't, um, repent and watch The Chosen because it's so good, you guys. It's, 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 I'm, I, I, I usually, to my own uh, regret, kind of roll my eyes at a lot of Christian media. This is so fabulous. It's so well done. And it tells the story of Christ and his disciples in a way that's really, um, again, uniquely relatable and um, amazing. Anyway, there's a story of Matthew in there. If you've seen it, you understand how rejected he was. Jesus seeks. So Jesus is walking along. He sees Matthew in his tax booth. 
making money um, for the oppressors from his own people. Notice what Matthew's not doing. What's Matthew not doing? He's not in the synagogue. He's not doing charity work. He's not doing something commendable. He's actually at work in the vocation that everybody hated, that brought him shame, that brought him rejection. That's where Jesus finds him. That's where Jesus seeks him. Jesus, God in flesh, walking on earth, goes to this place where this man is. It's kind of popular in our, in our current moment to say things like, well, I'm not sure what the universe has for me. Or um, I'm just going to throw this out there to the universe. Anyone familiar with these kind of like universe attempting statements? You guys familiar with these? Okay, cool. Um, let me tell you why that's lame in view of our <laughs> scripture, right? This is God who is personal coming into flesh and dirt and sweat and seeking out someone who everybody hates. The universe is not personal. The universe has no name. The universe has no feelings, intuition, will. To, to wish something out to some abstract concept is a waste of time. Whereas Jesus, we see, seeks personally. And whether it's Abraham, Moses, Paul, or here in Matthew, God seeks and he initiates. God is always the one who moves first. He moves towards his people, initiates. Jesus seeks and initiates. He moves towards Matthew. And the reminder here in this first point that Jesus seeks is that he sought you. If you're in this room, you are in this story, and he has sought you. Maybe it was through a radical experience. Maybe it was through faithful parents. Maybe it was through a teacher or a youth leader after a night at the bar or in the back of a church, on a sports team or a missions trip. Whatever it was, God has sought you in a similar way. Again, the familiarity can create distance from how profound this simple truth is that Jesus seeks. But Jesus doesn't just seek, he also calls, right? What does Jesus say to him? He says, follow me. Now, again, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't hand out a timeline or agenda. I love spreadsheets and order and structure and processes, right? Jesus doesn't hand that out. He doesn't say, meet me here at this place and this time, and here's what we're going to do. Um, and he also doesn't say, well, sit out. He doesn't say, I found you, Matthew. Now, uh, why don't you hop, hop on the bench? His call to those who he seeks is, follow me. Why is that hard? that call. If you're like me, I don't know what to do. It's too abstract, right? It's open-ended and it's scary. There's an author named Brennan Manning and one of his books, he tells the story of a, an American lawyer who um, had a good practice and he you know, probably hits midlife at some point and gets out of his practice, goes to India, and he works with Mother Teresa in her uh, home for the sick and the dying. And this lawyer is there in India serving the poorest people, some of the poorest people on the planet, in their worst moments of their lives. And he's there for months doing this, doing this, and he finally gets to meet Mother Teresa. And he's super excited, right, because it's his hero. He gets to meet her. And, and she says, you know, hello, my son. He says, yes. Hi, Mother Teresa. And she's like, what can I do for you? And he says, well, would you pray for me? And she said, oh, I will, I will, of course I'll pray for you. What would you like me to pray for? And he said, well, you know, he tells her his story about his law firm, and he's like, well, I'm not sure what to do next, so if you would just pray for clarity for me, I'd really appreciate that. And she says, I will not do that. And he's like, what? I gave up everything. I came all the way over here. Why would you just, this simple prayer for me. 
And she said, I will not do that because clarity is often the last thing we hold on to before we have faith. And this call to follow me touches that piece of us that wants the answer and the security and the clarity and not just to follow Jesus, which is what he bids us to do. But Matthew does that. He leaves a lucrative career. Matthew lived well. He may have been despised by people, but he lived better than all of them. Probably took some kind of selfish contentment in that. But Matthew leaves his career, his income, and his security to follow Jesus. And he may not be calling you to leave your career, but there will be a cost. After all, we follow a guy who was crucified. There will be a cost of some, of some kind of following Jesus. It will call your money, your relationships, your time, your power, all of it to be used for his kingdom in some way or another. And the only way we can follow well is to focus on who we're following. The me part of that phrase, follow me. It's easy to follow someone who loves you, who you can trust, who you know will be with you through anything. Jesus calls us to follow him. And he's given you the same call. So he seeks, he calls. He also redeems and remakes. We see this in verses 10 through 12. Jesus redeems. So after he calls, Matthew says, hey, follow me. Matthew has a party and he invites his friends who the author of his own gospel calls sinners, right? Matthew himself includes him, himself in this party of people that he slaps this label on. And one reason why you have to love scripture and you have to believe that it's true is that none of the disciples or the authors of scripture put them in this vision to look awesome. None of them, like, I don't know about you, if I write my own bio, my bio or obituary or my LinkedIn profile, it's going to look great, right? It's going to tell you everything awesome about me. None of the disciples do that in scripture. Matthew doesn't do that here. He puts himself in this, in this, fre- this fellowship of sinners, and so Jesus comes to this party, he reclines here, which is, you know, a symbol of association, deep friendship, and he doesn't, this is important to see here, because sometimes we create a false dichotomy, um, Jesus doesn't excuse the sin, he doesn't say that they're not sinners, but he still associates with them. He doesn't, de- he doesn't deny their nature, their actions, and he doesn't deny that they need a physician, as he says in the next verse but he moves towards them in mercy. And the Pharisees, per usual, are furious, and they complain not to Jesus, but to his disciples, and they use the language of guilt and shame. And if any of you guys listen to news or read Twitter or anything like this, this language is going to seem familiar to you. How could you be hanging out with those people, is their accusation. Guilt and shame. Sinners and tax collectors. They've done things wrong. They are unacceptable. Guilt and shame are the labels they they lay on them. Why do you eat with this scum, this trash, this garbage? And right here in this passage is where we find our problem. Because we don't often think that we are the problem. People in our current cultural moment, people on the left say, look at those bigots over there on the right. And people on the right say, look at those Marxists over there on the left. It's an issue of identity. And you have to understand that traditionally identities, in traditional cultures, you got your identity from your family, from your culture, from the roles that you played. In our modern culture, you get your identity from self-expression and self-determination. And wherever we try to draw it from that's apart from Christ will turn out to this dynamic here that we see in this passage. Why do you hang out with them? They're the problem. And the problem only exists broadly in culture, 
because it exists first individually in each of our own hearts. It exists at a big level because it originates at the smallest, most personal level. Our nature is to build our identities on things other than God. Our career, our finances, our exercise, our health, our diets, our parenting, whatever it is that we think is most important about us becomes the very thing that we draw lines with. And by doing so, we create a law where strangely, we're always right, they're always wrong, and they're the sinners. And we do the things that these Pharisees are doing. We keep score, we punish, we reject, we withhold mercy. We minimize our own flaws, our own anger, envy, gossip, lust. We do it in our marriages, in our homes, in our friendships, in our church. You've done it, and I've done it. And here's the jarring truth of the gospel. You are more sinful than you ever imagined and more loved than you ever dared dream. With Jesus, there aren't groups of right and wrong. There are proud and humble. There are proud and humble. Jesus came for those who know that they need mercy, for those who know that they are powerless against the sickness of sin, like Isaiah or Peter, or Paul in Scripture, who all cry out for deliverance when they come face to face with God, if that's you, you're in good company. What's even more stunning is that Jesus took that guilt and shame of ours on himself. Luther commented that when Jesus hung on the cross, and you have this great exchange where he takes our sin on himself, and he gives us his righteousness in that exchange, that when Christ was on the cross, he actually hung there in our sin, in your sin. That he hung there as David the adulterer, as Peter the betrayer, as Nick the self-reliant, as Steve the porn addict, as Jenna the envious and angry. Whatever it is, Jesus took it on himself. Jesus came to redeem, and he came to redeem you. But Jesus also remakes. Jesus uses this image of a doctor with patience. A doctor, I know there's, I can see one doctor here that I know, uh, doctors, what's unique about them is not just that they can see the sickness. Jesus points out they're sick. They need a physician. Doctors can see what happens when they get healed. They know how to remedy the problem. A doctor can see the sickness. Jesus knows the power of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the consequences of sin, but a doctor can also see what the patient can become. And Jesus doesn't just see the sinner. Jesus sees what he can make them. Sometimes in sermon prep, you know, I'm, I'm reading a ton of stuff and, you know, uh, you, you, you read something profound and you go, this is incredible. How could I say this any better? And I found something this week and I just can't say it any better. So if it's okay, I'm going to read something Spurgeon said back in the 1800s that I think makes this point infinitely more articulately than I can. Here's what he says. Here's what Jesus says here in this, in this passage. His whole head is sick, saith Christ, but I can cure him. His whole heart is faint, but I can restore him and I will do it. His feet have gone astray. His mouth is an open grave. His eyes are windows of lust. His hands are stained with blood, but I will amend all that, and I will make him a new creature, meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Jesus looks, you see, not so much at what the sinner is in himself as to what he can make him. He sees in every sinner the possibility of making a glorified saint who shall dwell with him forever and ever. If he chose you, poor sinner, before all worlds were made and bought you with his blood, he sees you not as you are, but as you shall be when he has perfected you. Oh, what a wonder it will be when that poor drunkard over there shall sing in heaven as one of the spirits of men made perfect. And when yonder harlot shall have a golden harp in her hand and sound forth the praises of him who hath loved her and washed her from her sins in his own blood. 
Yet he who has said it will do it. He who is mighty to say will redeem by power those who he has secured by his purchase. And penitent sinner, Jesus already hears thee hymning his praise. And he sees thee as thou wilt be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, washed in his blood, renewed by his spirit, brought safely home and glorified with him forever. No wonder then that Christ is willing to come to poor sinners and to, to, to dwell with them. He can see what you and I cannot see, what they shall be when he has fulfilled his purposes and mercy and grace concerning them. Oh God. Like a block of marble that an artist can see and know the sculpture that he will make, Jesus sees you and I in our worst and he sees I can make him into something better. One day. Lastly, Jesus knows and loves. As Jesus passed on from there, sorry, the last word, go and learn what, what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus knows and loves. So these Pharisees were Bible scholars, and Jesus gives them a homework assignment. How do you think that went over? <laughs> Probably not super well, right? Um, so he says, go and learn what this means, and he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. He gives them an assignment. The Pharisees knew the Torah inside out. They sought to keep it down they sought to keep it down to its most minute detail. Imagine their, indig their indignation, their contempt at being given an assignment by a man who eats with tax collectors and sinners. How dare he do this? Imagine them going to the synagogue, rolling out the scroll of Hosea 6.6, where they find it. They stubbornly pull it out. They unroll it. They're all flustered. They're like, we're going to get this guy. You know. They realize that Jesus, as they unroll the scroll, they realize that Jesus only gave them half a verse. He gave them a little surprise in this assignment. He left out the second half. And imagine how, felt, how they felt when they read this. I want you to show love and not offer sacrifices, is the, verse, the part that Jesus gave them. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. I don't want all the things that you do. I want you, is what God's saying there. I don't want you to be busy. I want your heart. I don't want your money. I don't want your time. I want you to know that I love you. Imagine the Pharisees when they read that. How little does God want rote, empty sacrifice? How much does he want mercy? How much does he want you to know that he loves you? Well, Hebrews tells us that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. Jesus gives them a homework assignment that he would one day fulfill. God doesn't want empty religious adherence. He doesn't want your heritage with your own faith. He wants you, and he wants you to know that he loves you. Matthew's gospel was a discipleship manual for the early church, and he was concerned to show Jesus as the promised rescuer. The question as we close here and as we look at this little vignette is which group are you in? There is Matthew and the tax collectors. There are the Pharisees, and there is Jesus. And spoiler alert, you're not Jesus. Where do you find yourself? Without regular reminders, the story that you live in is too small. The most important truths about you are gained by understanding important truths about God. If you are a fellow or former current scumbag, there's good news for you. Jesus seeks and calls you. If you're a fellow merciless religious person, there's an invitation for you. Jesus wants you to come into the party to be known and loved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.